1: Good day. This is Boris Scarpa. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. And we have with us today uh, Timothy Sandifer, who is uh, who is uh, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute. And he has also written a range of books on a range of subjects. And the book which we are going to discuss today is Freedom's Furies... How Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand found liberty in an age of darkness. Welcome to our show, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, this show is it's a bit like the old-timey village of Anatevka. We have traditions. We uh, always start with a traditional question, uh, which is, how did you choose the subject uh, for this
0: book? Well, I had always been interested in the uh coincidence that in nineteen forty three these three women all published books that basically started you know the libertarian or free market movement in the United States. It's just an interesting coincidence, I thought. But then as I learned more about it it turned out that they were friends and they knew each other they corresponded and I've always been you know interested in both the history of ideas and in political freedom generally so it this idea had always been kind of in the back of my mind that i wanted to write it and the opportunity came when the pandemic came and there was the the shutdowns for a little while and so i wasn't driving to work i had some extra time on my hands so i started to uh, to tinker with it and it turned into the book well this is
1: uh, this allows me to kind of move on to the next question and at the new books network our audience is Fairly unique in that we have a disproportionate, you know, statistically disproportionate number of people who not only are their avid readers, but they, you know, some of them are working on their own books, some of them are considering, you know you know, working on their own books in the future. And so I would like to ask you about your experience working on this book. Can you tell us about some of the obstacles which you've had to overcome and how you have dealt with them? And maybe you have some advice for our listeners. Well, I had
0: one big advantage going into the project, which is that all three of these women have already had biographies written about them. Several years ago, I wrote a book that was a biography of a scientist and philosopher named Jacob Bernofsky. And in that case, nobody had ever written a biography of him before. So that was a lot more challenging. I had to figure out just basic questions about what happened when. But in this case, I had their biographies in hand. And so I I had a rough outline of the history involved. The big challenge was first getting their correspondence and their and the uh, Rose Wilder Lane kept a diary. So I wanted copies of that. Fortunately for me, these documents were held by libraries in various places. Rand, Lane and uh, and Patterson's papers are at the Hoover Presidential Library in Iowa. And then Ayn Rand's papers are at the Ayn Rand Institute in California. And they, the people who work there were kind enough to make copies and send them to me of the documents that I wanted. Now, I had to know what it was I wanted. And that's different than going to a library and, and think you know just rifling through what they have to find stuff that you might not know about but nevertheless i i did have the advantage that i basically already knew what i wanted to see and they were willing to send those to me so that was very helpful and then there's a lot of websites like the uh you know the new york herald tribune is on online and that was the newspaper that isabel patterson wrote for the newspapers.com carries a wide variety of newspapers from the time and they're all word searchable so it was we have the technology now that allows you to do a lot of archival research that you that wasn't possible in the past now that and that's an advantage another disadvantage that i faced was finding a way to tell the story in a narrative way because you know, one thing I've learned from writing books a- like this is that it's not enough to know what happened when and just put it in chronological order. That's that results in a very boring book. A while back, I, in fact, I, I read a biography of a of a 19th century American female intellectual and and the book was literally written just in chronological order. Here's what happened. Then this and then this and then this. And it, it didn't tie anything together as a story. So the what's challenging in a situation like this is is telling the story chronologically and thematically. Telling the not just in terms of history, this happened and then this happened and this happened, but also saying why this influenced that, why the other thing influenced the other thing. Tying the story around. And actually, if you look at my book, you'll find that there's a couple places where I skip ahead. In particular, I talk about one of Isabel Patterson's novels. And if you're paying attention to the chronology while you're reading, I I hope you aren't, because the whole point of this is that the reader doesn't notice what I'm doing. But what I do is I tell about that book out of order. The book was published in the 30s. And I talk about it when I'm talking about the 1920s. And the reason why is, first of all, the book was inspired by things that occurred in the 1920s. And secondly, because I actually didn't have a lot of story to fill that period in the 1920s. So to cover that, what I do is I jump ahead to talk about the book. And it looks like I'm talking about the 20s when I'm actually talking about the 30s. And it makes the story flow. And that was a big challenge is making the story flow so that it doesn't just read like a a timeline, a boring timeline. I wanted it to read like a story. And that was that was a big challenge. Fortunately, I I, you know, their stories are so dramatic that I was able to, I think, work that pretty well.
1: And I'd like to follow up a bit just to be clear for our for our listeners you are yourself um, which part of the United States are you operating out of
0: I'm located in Arizona
1: right so I'm I'm, I'm not in the United States myself but it seems like there was a Great geographical diversity in terms
0: of where the sources are physically located. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and had it if it were not for the internet and if it weren't for these librarians willing to send me material, it would have been extremely challenging to write this book because I would have had to go across the country to Iowa to do the that research. I would have had to go to Southern California to get the the RAND material. I mean, it's it's very difficult to say how it would have been. So and I know this because, you know, 20 years ago when I was first starting to work on my JK a bernofsky book back then there you didn't have things like uh youtube and google books and these other uh research facilities that have just come of uh, become available in the past 20 years or so that make it much much easier to do the kind of research i i really am now i i, I admire historians from decades ago so much more now because it must have been incredibly hard to go down to libraries and write all this stuff out by hand and find this material without any kind of computer to help you. That must have been very difficult.
1: And there is something which I found very fascinating in your book, because in my own background is partly in history of ideas, and partly it is, and I do have a degree in English studies, so I do have some understanding of literature, and something which you cover is the revolt from the village literary movement and how it, it how it shaped the politics, how the aesthetics moved to the politics. Can you tell us a little bit about this relationship between this revolt from the village and the writings of the Three, the three Furies, of course?
0: Yeah, and actually this can, this ties into the last question because um, you know one of my one of my favorite books of all time is a book called the metaphysical Club by Louis Menand and it's a history of ideas at the early of the early 20th century and particularly the development of the philosophy of pragmatism and one thing I admired about the book so much is that Menand talks about philosophy and politics and law and science and he blends them all together to give you a real sense of what was going on at that time so I wanted to do something like that and the revolt from the village literary movement is part of the story that I tell for just that reason. It really sets the background and shows you the influence on these writers. The the, the revolt from the village was a movement beginning in about 1910 or so where writers started to criticize American writers started to really criticize and attack the idea of small town life. Now, you know the classic American, the greatest of, of all American writers is Mark Twain, and Mark Twain's writing of, was before this. He, he was, you know, pro. He was in favor of the small. But he wrote about the small towns in a romantic way to say they were, you know, wonderful places to grow up and all this sort of thing. And the Revolt from the Village said exactly the opposite. They said small towns are terrible places, full of stifling conformity. They're boring. They restrain your individuality. And the greatest of the Revolt from the Village writers was Sinclair Lewis, who in 1920 published Main Street, which is an enormously influential novel. And Main Street is about this woman who named Carol Kennicott, who wants to live a life of significance and meaning, but finds that the small town she lives in basically strangles all of her idealism out of her and they almost kills her with boredom. Well, Lane... Patterson and Rand were all influenced in different ways by Sinclair Lewis's writings. The, um, Lane and uh, knew Sinclair Lewis very well. So did Patterson. Rand met Lewis only one time, but she read his books and admired his writing tremendously. She called him the greatest writer of the 20th century. So Lewis spoke to them in a couple ways. The most important was that he articulated this sense of wanting to have a life of significance and particularly women wanting to live a life of significance and that conformity and, and, and the materialism, the consumerism of the age was squeezing that out of you. It, it might seem kind of strange to say that Ayn Rand was influenced so heavily by a writer who was anti-consumerist because she has this reputation, she was in favor of capitalism and so forth. But if you read The Fountainhead, what she's writing about is the artist resisting the pressure to conform and the pressure to cheapen and water down his art for the, for the satisfaction of the mob. He, Howard Roark, her hero, refuses to do that. And that's really her response to this revolt from the village movement. She's saying personal integrity is the solution. To the feeling of constant conformity and ordinariness that the revolt from the village was protesting against.
1: Well, I I just like to drill down a bit about something you said because I am thinking about you know particularly the scene in Wizard Living where where Kira is is of course a viewpoint character who is very clearly you know in some way. A reflection of Rand's own views, and there's a scene where she encounters um, a union leader from Britain who is visiting the Soviet Union. And she's there's a whole discussion about the I, I believe it's uh, some of the clothing and the makeup that this woman has. And so clearly, Rand has a whole different view of consumerism than, the, than it often had. Because clearly, the, the the ability to have these supposedly cheap and superficial, superficial things, it's uh, it's quite important to Rand. It's, it's it's I don't think it's fair to, to say that she sees con- c- consumerism as stifling.
0: Yeah, no, that's a a good point because um you know part of the revolt from the village idea was this disdain for uh mass consumer culture and and the uh, and the you know ordinary productivity the machine and things that there was something inauthentic about that and rand of course you know she was born in russia she grew up in the soviet union she escaped from the soviet union in 1926 and arrives in the in the united states and you know in the middle of the roaring 20s the Things like the Chrysler building are being built in this this really a grand time in American society. And Rand has a very different perspective, of course, on material culture. She's, she and, and this is something she shares with Isabel Patterson, by the way. Patterson also had a different attitude toward the, the criticism of consumerism. She said, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a life... With with creature comforts, with you know a Model T in your in your garage and a, a nice house with a picket fence, there's nothing wrong with that. And these these romanticists who hate that stuff and say that that's somehow cheap and that we we need something grander and more important than that, she said those people are very misguided. And Rand sort of blends the two. Rand is interesting, very unique in this sense that she is a romantic and a bourgeois writer. She's romanticizing the idea of industry and productivity and capitalism. Very unusual. And the reason why is because she, on one hand, she agrees with, you know, Carol Kennicott in Main Street that she wants a life of great meaning and, and, and distinction. But on the other hand, she also recognizes the importance and the validity of wanting things, of ordinary creature comforts in your life. And so what she does is blend those two so that the industrialists become the great heroes in, for instance, Atlas Shrugged.
1: Which lets me which lets me move on to something slightly different, but also kind of connected, which is we we talked about uh, Sinclair Lewis a bit, and you know he's generally in the public mind, he is associated today with a sub of uh, some of the reforms of the of course, some of the reforms. Of the 1930s, and he's uh, imagined as a sort of progressive writer, uh, some uh, because of his criticism of the political right, because of his, uh, because of his writings about uh, working conditions in meatpacking plants, you know, the jungle, and yet we uh, we see in your book that he had met all three of these women, and the, some uh, some of them were, even had a friendly acquaintance with him. All three of them had a great respect for his talents, and so because of the perception that these, uh, these are so totally different people, can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship
0: between them? Sure. So, so for one thing, I'll, I'll, one minor correction, which is the jungle was written by Upton Sinclair, who is a different oh my writer. God, I
1: apologize. I really terrible one. <laughs> but they uh, they
0: they lived at the same time, and they you know they they went around kind of <laughs> in the same circles, so it is easy to get uh, them confused. I'm very very sorry. I, I I've never
1: read any of these books, and so there are two peoples. There, there Sinclair is in their names, and I'm right. terrible
0: <laughs> sorry. No problem. But so so Sinclair Lewis. It is true, Sinclair Lewis is regarded as being sort of this liberal figure. And the, and one reason why is because in the 30s, he published a book called It Can't Happen Here, which was a, a sort of a future, a, a what they call now a dystopia. It was about a future in which fascism comes to America and takes over. And Ayn Rand loved this book when it came out. She She called it the greatest novel of the 20th century. And Lewis was a a kind of a leftist figure, sort of. I mean, people who knew him said that he didn't really have any clear political ideology. But his wife, Dorothy Thompson, was a very well-known, very highly respected journalist and was a moderate liberal and and became a supporter. She originally opposed Franklin Roosevelt and later became a supporter of Franklin Roosevelt because she thought it absolutely imperative to join World War II and fight against the Nazis. So you would, it's probably best to say that Sinclair Lewis and his wife were anti-fascist in a broad sense, but not particularly Certainly they were not libertarians. They were not free marketers or anything like that. Nevertheless, they had real he had real influence on all three of them. For one thing, Rose Wilder Lane, she was, you know, born in, in the eighteen eighties and she in, in South Dakota and she wanted to become a journalist, and she traveled to Europe in nineteen twenty and spent time in Paris and then moved on to Eastern Europe while she was in paris she became lovers with dorothy thompson before she before thompson married sinclair lewis and they remained close friends until uh, dorothy thompson died in the 1960s in fact uh, uh, Rose Wilder Lane babysat for them when Sinclair Lewis won the Nobel Prize in Literature. So they were very close. Isabel Patterson also knew uh, Sinclair Lewis from when he had worked as an editor in the 20s and had rejected one of her book manuscripts. And then, as I mentioned, Rand not only met Lewis and admired him tremendously, but she they shared the same literary agent. So they ran in the same circles and they were influenced by the, the rise of totalitarianism in Europe, both Nazi Germany and in Russia, um, Lenin and Stalin, and this tension about where should America go? Should should we adopt the fascist model? I mean, that was really that was a serious debate going on at the time. There was a real fashion for dictatorship in the United States in the in the late twenties and, and early thirties, and Sinclair Lewis, as well as these three women, were they were central to to resisting that trend. So from this, this is.
1: Mm, This is actually an important question, and it's a bit off topic, but maybe not. You know, something which you discuss in the book a lot is uh, this growing sense of pessimism, of malaise, of societal depression, which um, seems to appear in American culture in the 1930s. And, of course, Ayn Rand pushed back against this. She had this whole idea of a sense of life. Which is clearly, I think, a revolt against this sort of aesthetic, against this sort of approach. And, of course, Rose Wilder Lane also rebels against this. So, because we have because we have seen these periods of societal malaise in in American history time and time again, and it comes back again later. Some people say that we are entering a similar period now. And so, do you think that this period, this feeling of malaise and depression, do you think it comes from the economics of the time? Or do you think there is a feedback loop with the literature? What's happening? Where does this come from?
0: That's a, a great question. I definitely would say that there was a feedback loop. I think what happened was, you know, the the economic depression of 1929 started this this sort of, you know, it might, it might be a snowball effect as things got worse and worse because of Hoover, President Hoover's mishandling of the situation, and then Franklin Roosevelt even making things even worse for for his 12 year presidency. The economic Depression on one hand, plus the 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 rising popularity of doctrines like communism, in in the on the literary left and in and in Europe, I think what those tended to do was they de-emphasized the idea of rugged individuals, and they were very hostile to the idea of rugged individualism and and against the idea of a person going out and trying to do something grand and beautiful. Just because it was grand and beautiful, you know the idea of designing, you know, the Chrysler Building in nineteen in the nineteen twenties. It's it's such an outlandish skyscraper. It's so beautiful and bizarre looking, and and futuristic and magnificent. And I think that mentality of I'm going to build the tallest building in New York, and it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to have my name on it, you know. By the by, ten years later, by 1939, that attitude I think was regarded as antisocial among a lot of people, and you see this in the literature as the literature turns toward realism and the the, the creation of the what they called the proletarian novel. Books like uh, like The Grapes of Wrath or Native Son become popular, and Rand especially, but also uh, Lane and Patterson very much resisted this. They Patterson, she was, you know, both Lane and Patterson, they were born in the 1880s. So they were about, they were about 20 years older than Ayn Rand. And they remembered America from the days of the Wright brothers, you know, designing the first airplane and things like that. They remembered America as a land of grand opportunities and these larger than life characters, these people who would go out there and do these amazing things. And they wanted that back. Rand, meanwhile, she got that mostly from literature. I think she got it from people like Victor Hugo and so forth, and, and Edmond Rostand. And she wanted these, to to see people out there doing these great accomplishments. And so all three of them, but but especially Rand, pushed back against this malaise, as you put it, the, this this cultural depression that accompanied the Great Depression. And all three of them really had this idea. America can be great. The world can be great. It's not just an American thing. This is something that's a, all of humanity can accomplish grand and beautiful things, but it requires certain virtues. It requires integrity. It requires a, a, a willingness to, to work hard, long hours and you know, put up with the pain that that can cause sometimes. And of course, it requires political liberty. And those things were all being kind of rejected at that time i think that they did come back largely after the after world war ii after the the victory over the nazis there was a sense of of you know celebration and that you know the 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 sky's no limit and the this the space race and things like that i think really helped reignite that spirit of optimism but between 1929 and 1945 you know that kind of optimism was hard to come by sometimes
1: And, you know, I feel that, you know, once I've listened to you say these things, I feel that there is a sort of connection between what you've just said and um, what we've started with. You know, there's uh, there's an idea which uh, comes up in the literature of the time where uh, not only is there a sense of... um, uh, rejection of, um, of uh, ragged individualism, but I feel that there is a sense of rejection of... And I, all of these things which we discussed, the, the revolt from the village, the fear of fascism, the, all of these things, they come back to the idea that your your neighbor, so to speak, in, in your, or perhaps even you yourself, the reader, you know, your neighbor in this small town, uh, he is this deeply flawed person. People are bad. People are weak. You shouldn't. And if you are trying to, if you are reading these, if you are reading about these great accomplishments, and you think, oh well, I could do that, then you are deceiving yourselves. There is a book from this era which is called, I believe, the Myth of Rugged Individualism. I and where you know the, uh, the assumption is that not only is it false, but it's like an evil lie. It's an evil self-deception, and so there's a whole great, the, all of these things come back together about uh, to the idea that you know people are bad and weak.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think what happens is um, for a lot of people, compassion for those who are suffering. It starts out as, you know, a good thing. It's it's a, it's an understandable feeling on their se- on their side. Why why are people having a, a hard time we should help them out? That gradually grows into a resentment against the strong and a feeling that the not only did the strong somehow cause us harm because they're strong, they you know, the rich are rich because the poor are poor, that that attitude takes hold. But there's sort of this sense that that the virtues that make people succeed are somehow unimportant or fraudulent. And that turns into, Ayn Rand called it envy. Friedrich Nietzsche called it this, the which is this sort of, uh, it goes beyond just jealousy into a feeling on the part of th- some people that that strong and beautiful and accomplished people are bad because they don't represent authentic humanity and that the authentic human being is this flawed, weak, secretly suffering person who, you know, tries to get by, but is never, but never quite accomplishes anything perfect. And that, that attitude toward authenticity has become very much a part of our culture. It, it really Made a lot of inroads in the nineteen thirties, like I said, with with works by people like Steinbeck, but uh, or or Richard Wright. Uh, but in the nineteen fifties, with the Beat poets, in the nineteen sixties, with the hippies, and to this day, and especially today, you see this cynicism just pervades our culture where every television show is about these anti-heroes and these imperfect failing people who you know they've got some secret psychological problem or something like that that's always what the story is and that was very much what but all three of these writers but particularly Rose Wilder Lane and Ayn Rand were pushing back against in their fiction lane was trying to say our pioneer ancestors were able to survive and thrive on this continent through hard work, not despite their their uh, difficulties. And we can we have that gumption too. It's part of our national character. And Ayn Rand was saying, you don't have to you don't have to give suffering a significant part in your life. You, your life can be something grand and beautiful if you are willing to to take the steps necessary for it. And so it's not like. It's, it's not like what we
1: read about, in, for example, in Soviet literature, which is, of course, it's communist literature, but it often has a character who is heroic in some way, even though, of course, he has to be a politically approved character. It's not that these, uh, this is a movement to say that there are rich people who are rich and you should, their wealth is in some way something which should be redistribu- redistributed or something. We are having, uh, um, in some literary circles, we are having a doubt about the very, uh, about about the idea that you as a reader should want to have some kind of uh, these heroic virtues, that you should want to accomplish heroic things.
0: Yes, that's that's exactly right. The, and, and the way Rand would have put it, of course, is, as you said, the sense of life, this clash between the heroic sense of life and a sense of life that is rooted in in malevolence or the or or not necessarily malevolence, but in the in the belief that the world or the universe is a is a malevolent place where virtue and values have no real chance and that it's childish or silly to believe in the possibility of accomplishing great things. I think that's the attitude that has taken such a root, such a strong hold in our culture today, is the idea that there's something. Uh, superficial or frivolous or insignificant about the belief that heroism and achievement are possible. And not only is that a a bad, dangerous attitude to have for your own self, but it's also just factually incorrect. In in just the past couple of years, we have had the most astounding proof of the efficacy of humanity, of the capacity to accomplish great and beautiful things in the form of the um, the vaccine against COVID, which is one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of the human race. It's a breathtaking achievement that that was accomplished in such a short amount of time. And, and that is something that people ought to be celebrating in the streets. Unfortunately, our culture just doesn't put a lot of significance on things like that a lot of the time.
1: And of course, part of the division between these writers, maybe I misunderstand you, is not only about the achievements of some great people, but also about which are the sides of a person's own character. What should you be stressing in your interpretation of your own life?
0: Yes, and this difference, by the way, is not just a difference between these three women and their contemporaries, but it also there's a little bit of that in between themselves, also. And I'll give you the what I think is the most vivid example is that Isabel Patterson, as I mentioned, she believed that there was nothing wrong with wanting a, an ordinary life with a, a nice house with a picket fence and a Model T in your in your garage and that sort of thing. The, I call that the bourgeois attitude. Uh, which at the time was being heavily criticized. And Rand, she has a, rom- a more romantic attitude, where she wa- she believes in a r- real heroism, in setting out to accomplish something great and beautiful, even if, in some cases, it might lead to your own destruction. Now, she doesn't believe in self-sacrifice, but she believes in devoting yourself to something f- with all of your heart and soul. And Patterson I think she wasn't really about that. She was a little nervous about that idea. She really resisted the idea of devoting yourself passionately to some great project in life because she thought that that would possibly lead to self-destruction and also it could delude you into harming other people. And so there was a tension there between their own senses of life too between all three of these writers. They believed in the same things generally, but they put emphases in different ways when you're talking about the virtues of character. And from this,
1: I would like to move on to something which is also
0: traditional. And I've
1: said it before, that on this show, we are creatures of tradition. There is another, because of the value of, because of the importance of books here, because it's a new books network, books are right in the title. Can you tell our... Can you tell our audience about books which you might be reading right now or which you've read recently? Maybe is there something you'd like to recommend or suggest to our audience?
0: Yeah, so I'm actually in the midst of reading a lot about the post-World War II human rights crime. Uh, and war crimes trials. There was a famous trial at Nuremberg of the Nazi leaders, but there were a, a lot of other trials after that. There are about a dozen trials of German leaders, and then there were also war crimes trials in Japan at the end of World War II that are not really very well known. And so I'm reading uh, a bunch of books about those right now. I just finished a book by uh, John and Anne Tusa called The Nuremberg Trial, which is also available on audiobook, by the way, and I very highly recommend it. It is, it is a true masterpiece of historia of history what i loved about the book is as a practicing lawyer i was interested in the legal issues and they cover those legal issues in in detail and with accuracy but they, but by no means is it a boring or technical book. They tell those sto- those parts of the story in the context of the broader story of bringing the Nazi leaders to trial and what it was that they were convicted of and so forth. And so I'm reading those and then books about the, the Japanese war crimes trials that took place uh, at almost the same time. Well... That's,
1: you know, I've, we've all, I've known that there have been Japanese war crimes trials, but unfortunately I don't know anything about them, so I will have to, I will have to f- probably read that book. Now, I thank you for being with us on the show today, and of course when you write uh, your next book, and saying how many books you've written, I suspect that it is a matter of when, and not if. Of course, I are always welcome here with us again, Tim. To-
0: I appreciate it very much, and I definitely will make a point to come back.